Andrew Womack Ministries presents part one of the Sharper Than a Two-Edged Sword series, a three-part album. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Today I'm going to begin a teaching that I've entitled Sharper Than a Two-Edged Sword, and this is going to be a little different teaching for me because uh, what I'm doing is basically going to summarize uh, 16 of the major things that God has spoken to me that has been used to change my life. And then as I've shared these with other people, I've seen a lot of people set free. But many years ago in the UK, my uh, staff over there began to take some of my teachings like on healing or, uh, you know, you've already got it, spirit, soul, and body, uh, uh, you know, self-centeredness, and just 16 of my major teachings and they took and put into little pamphlets, a trifold pamphlet, and they would give those peop- uh, things out. When people wrote in with a question, they would send in, they would send out these uh, pamphlets, and it was so popular, people started requesting them <clears throat> that they couldn't keep them on the shelf, and what they did was combine them all into a book and entitle it Sharper Than a Two-Edged Sword. And so after we saw the success of that and how that this was blessing people, instead of going into depth, they just gave a brief synopsis. And then if people wanted more, they could go get the detail of it. Well, we uh, took this and edited it ourselves, And we've got this book entitled Sharper Than a Two-Edged Sword, which there are 16 chapters and one chapter summarizes an entire uh, subject an entire teaching. And then if people want it, they can go into more detail. So this is just a great way to introduce anyone to the ministry and give them an overview of some of the major things that God has spoken to me. So the very first thing that I teach in this uh, teaching is talking about what is true Christianity. And I tell you, this is really an important subject today because Christianity has been watered down to the point that I think that there are, I don't know the numbers, but I'm sure there are millions, millions of people in the United States and overseas who claim to be Christians, and yet they don't possess a real relationship with the Lord. And there are so many people who claim to be Christians, and yet they let their environment, their circumstance, what people say about them, whether or not the government's gonna promise them to give them more money or whatever, And they let things like that influence them. They do not reflect Christianity in their life. And look at this passage of Scripture right here. Matthew chapter 7, this was Jesus speaking. And Jesus said, this is the one who is the author of our salvation. He's the one that's going to make a decision on who is accepted and who's rejected. And Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. And then he goes on and he gives this parable about a man, you know, that built his house upon the sand and another one that built his house upon the rock. And when the storms come, the one that just took the easy route out and uh, they had a house, it may have looked good, but the foundation was completely wrong. That house got totally swept away and destroyed. And the point that he's making is there are some people who are just going through the motions and they may make a profession of their faith, but there isn't an absolute uh, encounter with the Lord where their life has really changed. Over in James chapter 2 and in verse 19, 
Boy, this is one of the most sarcastic statements in the entire Bible. I mean, it says in James 2, 19, it says, Thou believest that there is one God? You do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But in the next verse, verse 20, it says, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And if you were to read all of this in its context, it's saying just acknowledging that God exists isn't doing anything that the devil hasn't done. The devil also acknowledges God and even trembles at His name. Probably the devil actually is more committed and more aware of God than vast majority of people who claim to be Christians. But you've got to do what the devil has never done. And that is you have to submit yourself, put faith in God and His Son, the Lord Jesus, who paid for your sins. And you have to make Jesus your personal Savior. Just acknowledging that He exists doesn't do anything that the devil hasn't done. The devil lives his life in rebellion and against God. And again, remember this verse that I started with, Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he, he that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. It's got to be more than just an acknowledgement. You've got to make a commitment of your life to the Lord. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It says, If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then verse 13 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you take it in context, this is talking about calling upon the Lord in faith, putting your trust in Him, relying upon God. It's more than just mouthing words. You have to believe it to the point that it causes your actions to change. Now, I'm not talking about that you have to live a perfect life because none of us do that. God is merciful and gracious. And even though we make a commitment to Jesus to be our Lord, this is not you saying that I'll never make another mistake, I'll never sin, I'll from now on do everything perfectly because you can't do that. But you do have to be willing to make Jesus your Lord. Not just acknowledge that He exists, but for Him to become your Lord, for you to submit yourself to Him, for you to yield to Him. Now, it's a process. And when you begin this process, you yield to the Lord as much as you know. And as you go on, God will speak to you. But I'm saying a person who is sitting there saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, Jesus is my Lord. And yet you just live a life of total rebellion against God. I don't believe that that is true salvation. I think it's possible that a person could be trapped in a sin and because of the weakness of their flesh struggle with some issue like alcoholism or drug addiction or, or you know, pornography or something like that and you could still be a Christian. But if you are a true Christian, then you are miserable because you have made a commitment to the Lord and this is contrary to your whole life, your whole desire and commitment and you would be miserable, you would be condemned. A person that can just sit there and say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, and then live their life completely contrary to God and have no conviction and not have any desire to change, not, being, not trying to be set free from that thing, I doubt seriously if you have truly been born again. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Man, I preach the grace of God. I do not believe that we have to live holy in order to earn our salvation. 
And man, I stand by that. But at the same time, a person who says, oh, I've called out to the Lord and I've received salvation and yet you have no desire for God, you have no love for God, you aren't seeking God, and you are living a life of rebellion and to every standard that God puts down and you have no conviction about it, I just don't believe that your heart has ever been changed. See, true Christianity is not just an acknowledgement of a certain creed, a certain doctrine. True Christianity differs from all other religions on the planet in the sense that they will say, yes, there's a God. They will say, yes, we've sinned. Yes, there is a future punishment awaiting if we don't uh, receive forgiveness. But then where Christianity differs from every other religion, every other religion puts the burden of salvation on your back. You've got to earn it by going to church in the Christian realm. You've got to go to church and pay your tithes and live a moral life and do this and this and this. And if your good outweighs your bad, well, then God will accept you. But true Christianity says, no, you're all guilty. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. There is a payment for sin. And it doesn't matter if you commit big sins or little sin. All have sinned. You become guilty of all. And if you have sinned, the wage of sin is death. It is punishment. It is separation from God. But it goes on to say in Romans 6, 23, but the gift of God is eternal life. Again, every other religion on the planet makes you do certain things to try and earn and be worthy for God to accept you. But true Christianity differs from every other religion in this sense, and that is that God knew we couldn't save ourselves, so God Himself became a man. Jesus became our Savior. He took our place. He hung on the cross. He was punished for your sin and my sin. And true Christianity is an acceptance and a commitment to Jesus as your Savior, not to you being your Savior, not to you trying to earn relationship with God. But it's just you throwing yourself on the mercy of God as that thief on the cross did and say, be merciful unto me a sinner. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Have mercy on me. And if you call out to Jesus and believe that He has already paid for your sins, that He died and He suffered the judgment that you should suffer and that I should suffer, if you believe that and truly put faith in Him and say, Father, I believe that your Son, the Lord Jesus, paid for my sins and I receive that salvation as a gift. As it says in Romans 6, 23, the gift of God is eternal life. It's not a payment. It's not something you earn. It's something you ask and believe and receive as a gift. You know, if you were to take people from all of the major religions of the world along with a true Christian, and if they were to all die and then stand before God, and if God came to them and He says, why should I accept you into heaven? Well, you would have the Buddhists sit here and say, well, I shaved my head and I put on a saffron robe and I begged and I took this oath of poverty. And you would have the Muslims sit here and say, well, I did all of these things. I did a jihad and I killed the infidel. And you would have different people name everything that they've done. But if a true Christian was standing there and God came to them and says, what makes you worthy? They wouldn't point to anything that they've done. 
They wouldn't point to their church attendance or their Bible study or their prayer. Instead, they would point to Jesus and they said, I've got a Savior. Christianity is the only religion on the face of the earth with a Savior, a person who bought salvation for us, who paid the debt that we couldn't pay. And true Christianity, I have to emphasize that there is false Christianity that basically is doing the same thing as the other religions of the world, saying it's based on your goodness. If you'll live holy enough, if you'll just come to church, if you'll do these things, God will accept you. That's not true Christianity. True Christianity isn't what you do for God, but it's what God did for you through Jesus. And you have to put faith in Jesus. You will also hear many people today saying, well, there's many paths unto God. That's not true. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I've heard many people say, well, I believe in Jesus. He was a great example. He was all of these things. But, you know, I believe that the Buddhists are also getting in and et cetera in all of these different religions. That's not true. And you can't say that Jesus was a great man and a great example. Either he was who he said he was. You know, the woman at the well, she said, I know that when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things and uh, he'll lead us into this truth. And Jesus said, I am he. Jesus said, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. There is no other way. Either Jesus is who he said he was and the only way to God, or he was deceived or a deceiver. But you can't have it both ways. He is either who he said he was and he is the only way. You have to trust him and not what you do for him, but you have to trust what he did for you or you have to write him off as being a crook, a charlatan, a deceiver or a person who was deceived himself. It all comes down to your putting faith in a Savior. And if it's true Bible faith, I go back to those verses, James chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. You've got to do what the devil has never done. You've got to do more than just acknowledge that God exists and that Jesus was the Son of God. You have to commit your life unto Him. You have to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That means you have to make a commitment of your life and turn your life over to Him. Again, this isn't really difficult, but it is a heartfelt commitment. I was eight years old when I did that, and my life changed. The very next day, my friends could tell I was different, and I told them I got saved, and I remember them making fun of me. In the, in the uh, third grade, at eight years old, there was a change in me, and it was a noticeable change. The Bible says that when you get born again, you change. You pass from death unto life. I know that there's people, you acknowledge the existence of God. You acknowledge some of these things. You might even desire some of the results that I've talked about. But have you ever really made a commitment of your life? Have you ever made Jesus your Lord? If you were to stand before God, would you point to what you have been doing for God or would you point to your Savior as the only reason for your acceptance into heaven? That's a question that you need to answer. Yesterday I talked about what true Christianity was, what really being born again is all about. And uh, that's what we focused on. Today I want to focus on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you know, there's a lot of confusion about this. A lot of people don't understand 
what this is all about. And a lot of people think that when you get born again, when you make Jesus your Lord and receive salvation, that you get everything that there is. But let me share some verses with you right here. This is after Jesus was raised from the dead and some of the very last instructions He gave to His disciples before He was received up into heaven. He told them this in Acts chapter 1. In verse 4 it says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith He, Ye have heard of Me. For John truly baptized with, the, with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now get a picture of this. Here was the resurrected Jesus, risen from the dead, and He's telling His disciples, don't go tell anybody about this. Don't minister. Don't go share this word. Don't do anything. But you stay here and wait for this promise of the Holy Spirit coming. Now this is major because they had the greatest news that the world had or ever will have. Uh, they had this greatest news to share. And yet the Lord said, don't do anything until you receive power from on high. He goes on to say in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, it says, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. He said you would receive power the word for power there, the Greek word is dunamis. It's the word we get dynamite, dynamo from. We receive this supernatural, miraculous working power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And many people just assume that all of this, we get the whole thing at salvation. But you know, Jesus said, or excuse me, it was Paul uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in uh, Romans chapter 10 verse 9, I used this verse on my program yesterday, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Well, right over here in John chapter 20, Thomas and all of the apostles, when they saw the resurrected Lord, Thomas fell down and said, My Lord and my God. He confessed the Lord Jesus, and he certainly believed he was raised from the dead because he was standing there in front of him. So he fulfilled Romans 10 verse 9. He confessed with his mouth the Lord Jesus and believed God was raised from the dead. And as a result, he fulfilled the requirements to be born again. And yet the Lord told him and the other apostles, don't leave, wait for this promise of the Father. So this shows you that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was separate from this born-again experience. As a matter of fact, again, I'm going through these things very quickly. I haven't got time to go into detail, but I do have a book on this entitled The New You and the Holy Spirit that will go into detail and will explain this. You can get this for further explanation. But right here in John chapter 20, the Lord breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And so... They had received the Holy Spirit, but here's a second experience where they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this happened on the day of Pentecost, which is recorded in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and sat upon each of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. Now remember, this is over 40 days after he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 40 days after they confessed Jesus as their Lord and believed that He was risen from the dead. They were born again. And yet after that, they received this supernatural experience where the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them. And I tell you, it transformed their life. Just days prior to this, these disciples had been so fearful that they all forsook Jesus and fled. Peter denied the Lord three times that he even knew Him. He was operating you know, just as a natural human being would, fearful that the same ones who had taken his master were going to take him. But after they received the Holy Spirit, Peter stood up and boldly, boldly preached a message in Acts chapter 2 that caused 3,000 people to get born again on the day of Pentecost. He had boldness speak through him. And I mean, they were arrested and they were criticized by the Jews for this. And Peter boldly stood up and he says, you judge yourself whether we're supposed to obey God or obey men. And it says that the Pharisees took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And when they saw the boldness of them, they were just amazed. Prior to the, receiving the Holy Spirit, they were weaklings. They were fearful. They didn't understand. They couldn't do anything. When the Holy Spirit came, there was power. Just like Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall receive power, miracle, miraculous working power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And I'm telling you, receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an essential for you having an effective Christian life. There are many people who have confessed Jesus as their Lord, who have been born again. If they were to die, they would go to heaven. But they are fearful. They are weak. They are confused. They don't understand. They don't have this boldness because they don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes many things, but it includes speaking in tongues. When the disciples received it right here, they spoke in tongues. And you can go all the way through the book of Acts and every single time that people received this baptism of the Holy Spirit, they spoke with tongues. Again, there are some people say, but I believe I got all of this when I got saved. Well, you can see every example. I'm not going to take time to turn to everyone, but in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, you can see how that Philip preached to the Samaritans. They got born again. They were water baptized. And afterwards, it could have been only a matter of days or a couple of weeks, but afterwards, the apostles from Jerusalem came down and prayed for them and they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. It was a separate experience. In the 10th chapter, you can see Cornelius, that he had Peter come and preach the gospel unto him. And as he preached the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they all began to speak in tongues. So in that instance, they received salvation the born-again experience, and speaking in tongues at the same time. In the 19th chapter of Acts, you can see that Paul found some people who were believers, but they had been water baptized and they hadn't even heard whether there had been a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul heard that, he explained unto them and told them about the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they began to speak in tongues. Somebody says, do you have to speak in tongues? No, you get to speak in tongues. It's a privilege. It's not something you have to do. 
You know, right now I'm not speaking in tongues. I'm speaking in a known language. I'm speaking in English. But I have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I do speak in tongues. I have that ability, but I'm not doing it right now. Does that mean that I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit because I'm not speaking in tongues right now? No, I have the Holy Spirit and I have this power, but I have to choose to speak in tongues. It is something that you have to believe and receive. Matter of fact, when I first received the Holy Spirit, I prayed and asked God for this power because I saw that there was just so many deficits in my life, deficiencies. And I knew that there was more. And I started praying for this power of the Holy Spirit. And I had a miraculous encounter with the Lord that I believe was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I could spend a lot of time on this, but the Bible says that when the Holy Spirit is come, He will teach you all things and lead you into all truth and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've spoken unto you. John 14, 26, that you would be shown things to come. You would have a love for God come. All of these evidences of receiving the Holy Spirit happened in my life. That was on March the 23rd, 1968. I was instantly changed. But you know, it was three and a half years after that before I spoke in tongues. But that's because I was a Baptist. And I had been told that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues was of the devil. I was seeking for more of God and asking God for His power and I experienced it. And my life was instantly changed. But it took me three and a half years to get over the criticism and the unbelief and the negative things that I had been taught against speaking in tongues. And so I had to overcome those things. The Holy Spirit doesn't force you to speak in tongues. But see, I didn't understand these things. I was waiting on God to just force me to speak in tongues, that it would be beyond my control. I tell people all of the time that it's very similar to when I stand up and minister in front of a group. I want God to speak through me. I want God to release His power through me. But if I was just to pray a prayer and say, Oh God, don't let it be me. You speak through me. And then I just opened up my mouth and waited on God to make it talk. You would never hear a word. It's me that speaks. But I believe it's under the inspiration, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. But He doesn't physically take my mouth and force me to talk. Matter of fact, this very verse that I read right here was one of the keys that helped me to go ahead and receive this gift of speaking in tongues. In Acts 2-4, it says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. Notice, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. The Holy Spirit inspires it. He empowers it, but the Holy Spirit doesn't speak in tongues. He doesn't take my mouth and make me speak in tongues. Instead, He inspires it. And see, I was praying and asking God, don't make me speak in tongues. He doesn't force you. You have to, by faith, begin to start speaking and believe that God is behind it. Very similar to when I preach. Speaking in tongues is like that. The Holy Spirit doesn't force you to speak in tongues. He inspires you, but you have to take a step of faith and speak in tongues. I know that there's so many people that have been taught against this. Our religious system today basically discounts this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some might even acknowledge that it exists, but they don't promote it. I'm telling you, it's not been emphasized. It's not been 
promoted the way that it should. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the single most important thing that ever happened in my Christian life since my initial born-again experience. And just like Jesus said, you receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You would have never seen me on television if I hadn't have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in this gift of speaking in tongues. It has changed my life. When you get born again, God puts all of this stuff in you. But when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, God draws it all out of you through His power. And there are many Christians who are truly born again, but they don't have any power to release it. They can't, they don't understand spiritual things. The Holy Spirit, one of the greatest benefits of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that your revelation of God just gets transformed. The Holy Spirit is the one who wrote the Bible. He inspired it. And when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in this gift of speaking in tongues, you, it's just like you get a brand new Bible. It's like it's brand new. You read it and the Holy Spirit speaks to you in ways that you never got before. It has to be spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit has to impart this unto you. And I'm telling you, there are millions of Christians who you might be born again, truly headed to heaven, but you don't have any power. Jesus said you would receive power after the Holy Spirit. Not before, after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you would be an effective witness. You need this baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues. That's not all that there is to it, but speaking in tongues is one of the greatest ways to release in it. Because when you speak in tongues, you're saying things that make no sense to your mind, and it forces you to get out of just your intellect, out of yourself, and you have to take a step of faith and step over into this supernatural spiritual realm. It's just like flipping a switch boom, you turn on this dynamo, this power of the Holy Spirit. And I guarantee you, it will transform your life. It will give you an ability to pray when you don't understand how you should pray as you should. You can just turn on this gift of speaking in tongues and pray the hidden wisdom of God, bypassing all of the doubt, the confusion, and the unbelief that's in your brain. You can pray straight from your spirit. In 1 Corinthians 14, 14, when you pray in tongues, it's your spirit that prays, not your head. You're praying from your spirit, the part of you that was born again and that knows God. You see so much more power. In Jude chapter 1 and verse 20, it says, But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Praying in the Holy Ghost is talking about praying in tongues, and that is your most holy faith. It just moves you to another level. It's like flipping on the turbocharger, the afterburner. You are going to see power manifest. And many of you have received salvation. You have made Jesus your Lord. But the truth is, if you were to be honest, you do not have power working in your life. The thing that you are missing is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Today I want to talk about a revelation that was the key that just unlocked everything to me. It might be different for different people, but I'm telling you, I was, I was born again when I was eight years old. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was 18 years old. I began to speak in tongues when I was 21 years old. But uh, it was like a dynamo, an explosion took place on the inside of me. I had all kinds of things happening on the inside. I had faith and victory. I was dreaming big 
but I couldn't understand how this could happen because I would feel these things in my heart, but then I'd go look in the mirror and man, I saw zits and, you know, just things that weren't right. And yet the Bible was saying, as Jesus is, so am I in this world. And I couldn't see it in my physical body. I couldn't search my mental, emotional part and see this. I still had fears. I was still an introvert. I, all kinds of things. And I could not see what I saw in the Bible in my mirror. And because of it, I was confused. And here is a key that unlocked everything for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now this says that if you are in Christ, this is talking about if you have truly received salvation, if you are born again, then you are a new creature. Old things have passed away. It didn't say old things are in the process of pass away, are going to pass away, will pass away when you get to heaven. It's presenting it as an, a, a done deal. If you're in Christ, old things have passed away. All things have become new. Now see again, I couldn't see that change. I could feel that change in my heart, but I couldn't see it in my actions. I couldn't see it in the mirror, in my physical body. And because of this, I was perplexed. And the key that unlocked everything, the Lord spoke to me through this verse. And He says, what part of you got born again? Well, it wasn't my physical body because the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that this mortal has to be changed into immortality, this corruptible into incorruption. This body's not saved. It's had a payment made. It's been purchased, but I don't have the redeemed, the, the final thing that I'm going to have. I'm going to get a glorified body. My body's not the part of me that got saved. And then... I, my soul isn't the part of me that got saved. Again, if I had more time, I could teach on this, but your soul is what most people consider your inner person, your personality. It's your will, your emotions, your feeling. And that part of you didn't get saved. Because, you know, when you got saved, when you got born again, your mind didn't just instantly transform. You still had your memories, not my memories. Your mind wasn't instantly perfect. You still remember where you were born. You still remember your childhood. You still remember all of these things. So your physical body didn't get saved. If you were a man, you're still a man. If you're a woman, you're still a woman. If you were fat, you're still fat. Now you could lose weight, but I mean your body doesn't instantly change. Your emotions don't instantly change. You don't instantly lose all of your depression. You don't instantly have your mind renewed. You don't instantly think and feel the way that you should. And the Lord spoke to me from 1 Thessalonians 5.23 where Paul prayed a prayer and he said, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right there he said you have three parts, spirit, soul, and body. And the Lord spoke to me. I functionally was illiterate of this. I would sometimes use the word spirit and soul, but I actually considered them to be about the same thing. And most people do. Most people only functionally believe in two parts to them. The physical, natural part that you can see right now, and then they know that there's this inner person that has feelings and thoughts and emotions that 
you know, you may not be able to uh, see, but you can feel these things. You know, I could walk up and tap you on the shoulder and you feel it on your shoulder. You could feel it. But I could also say words to you and I can either make you happy, mad, glad, and I never physically touched you. It's not physical, it's emotional. It's this inner person. Everybody is in touch with those two parts but on a functional level, they do not believe that they are a spirit. And again, some of you might think, oh, I believe I've got a spirit. But you mix the spirit and soul together. Jesus said in John chapter 3 that that which is spirit is spirit and that which is flesh is flesh. That's just a way of saying that the physical realm and the spiritual realm don't connect there isn't a direct connection. What I'm trying to say here is like, for instance, if I was to ask you, are you hot or are you cold? You don't have to go pray about it or study and say, I'll come back and tell you tomorrow. No, you are instantly in contact with this physical realm. You know if you're hot or cold, if you have pain or whatever, you just could tell me instantly. If I was to say, how do you feel today? Not in your physical body, but in your emotions. You don't have to say, well, let me pray about it and I'll come back and study and I'll tell you tomorrow or next week. No, you instantly know if you're encouraged or discouraged, happy or sad. See, you monitor and are in touch with this physical, natural realm through your five senses every single second of every day. But... The spirit realm, you cannot monitor by your feelings, by your emotions. You can't go look in a mirror and see your spirit. So how do you know what's going on in the spirit realm? There's a spiritual world out here according to the Bible. There are angels and demons, all kinds of things going on in the spiritual world. And according to the Bible, there's also a spiritual you on the inside that cannot be felt or seen or discern through any of your five senses. So how is it that you know what's going on in the Spirit? John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus was the one speaking, and He says, the fle- it's the Spirit that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are Spirit, and they are life. God's Word is Spirit. It also says in James chapter 1 that whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, this is talking about the Bible, is like a man beholding his face in a glass or in a mirror is what it's talking about. So the Word of God is like a spiritual mirror. You know, if you want to see if your hair's combed, you can't go by how it feels. To look into your spirit, you have to put faith in what God's Word says. God's Word is spirit and it's life. It's telling you what's going on in the spirit realm. It's telling you who you are. Things that you can't see in a mirror, you can see through the Word of God. So going back to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And when the Lord showed this to me, that I was a spirit, soul, and body, and it's my spirit that got changed, not my body, not my soul, It was my spirit that was changed. And the Word shows me who I am in the spirit and what I have in the spirit. When I understood that, my whole life, my whole identity changed. Prior to that time, I thought I was being hypocritical if I said, well, I'm blessed, when the truth was I felt depressed and discouraged. 
But now I found out that in my spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. My spirit is always producing love, joy, and peace. So now I found out that even though I may feel discouraged, even though I may feel hurt by things that happen, my spirit man has just a constant flow of love, joy, and peace. And since I'm a new person in my spirit, it's my spirit that God changed, not my body and not my soul, my mental, emotional part, but it was my spirit. And I now live out of the spirit. I walk in the spirit. And I don't go by what I feel like. I go by what my spiritual mirror says. My spiritual mirror says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that I am blessed with all spiritual blessings. I am blessed. I'm not going to be blessed. I'm not, I, it's not that I can be blessed. I am already blessed. And I began to see that. And I started living out of my spirit, out of this new me, based on what I was seeing in the spiritual mirror, the Word of God. And I'm telling you, this has revolutionized my life. When I began to find out that it was my spirit that was changed, and in my spirit... I'm as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus is, that I have His mind, I have His understanding, I have His ability, His power. This is why He said in John chapter 14, verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Boy, when I saw that, and I understood that it wasn't out there, and I had to somehow or another pray and and be worthy for God to do something. And I didn't approach the throne anymore as saying, Oh God, I am nothing and I have nothing and I can do nothing. But would you please just stretch forth your hand and touch. Instead of that, I begin to recognize that I'm a new creature in Christ. That God has given me the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now on the inside of me. And that I have authority and power. See, I couldn't see these things in the mirror. I pray, I just pray that the Holy Spirit is helping you to understand what I'm trying to communicate because this would set you free the way it has me if you could understand. But I could see in the Word of God that we were supposed to lay hands on the sick and that they were supposed to recover. That we were supposed to be above only and not beneath. The head and not the tail. That we were supposed to rejoice at all times. But I would try and perceive these things in my physical body or in my mental, emotional realm, and I just couldn't see them. And therefore, I felt like I was a hypocrite if I went around praying and speaking faith and saying that this is going to happen when the truth is I had no confidence it was going to happen. I, I felt like a hypocrite because my identity was in this physical body and in my mental, emotional part. But I tell you, it transformed my life when I found out I was a new creature in Christ. I wasn't going to be a new creature in heaven. I was a new creature right now that my spirit was as saved and perfect right this moment as it is ever going to be in heaven. Boy, that's a statement that will make many people just choke right there. It's like you just, you couldn't swallow that. But I, I don't believe that when I get to heaven that I'm going to just be changed. Now, my body's going to be changed. I'll get a glorified body. My mind will be renewed, and I'll know all things as I know. But right now, in my spirit, I'm as perfect and pure and complete 
as I will ever be in eternity. And I know somebody's thinking, that can't be so. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we might have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, speaking of Jesus, so are we in this world. It didn't say, so are we going to be in the next world, in the sweet by and by. It says, so are we in this world. Now, does anybody really think that in your physical body you are identical to Jesus in this world? Absolutely not. Do you really believe that in your mind and in your emotions you're identical to Jesus? Man, He never sinned. He operated perfectly. He, there's just no way that anybody with half a brain could believe that in your physical body or in your soulish realm you are identical to Jesus. But that's what the Bible says. So how do you understand this? This understanding that it's your spirit that was changed. It's your spirit that's identical to Jesus. And it's not going to be in eternity that you get changed. Your spirit is already changed. One third of your salvation is already complete. You are as perfect and complete in your spirit right this moment as you will be a million years from now in eternity. And the rest of the Christian life is just this simple. Your spirit is perfect. It's got everything that you're ever going to be. It's identical to Jesus. And you have a, a soul and a body. If your soul, your mental, emotional part goes to understanding, believing, and trusting in who you are in the spirit, that's two against one, it will manifest itself in your physical body. If you have sickness in your physical body, and if your soul gets into agreement believing who you are and what you have, and if you believe with all of your heart that spirit and soul, then it's just a matter of time until your physical body responds. But if your soul, your mental, emotional part is over here controlled by your physical body, the pain that you feel, what the doctor says, and not controlled by who you are in the spirit and what God has given you, then that's two against one. It'll shut off the flow of God's power. It's like your mind here is like a valve. It's like a tap on a, on a water. If you could imagine this pipe and over here is this life-giving water and here is the spout where it comes out. But your mind is like the valve. And if it is crossways, if it is being controlled by just what you feel and what you see in the natural, then you can shut off that valve. And even though you've got this supernatural life of God in your spirit, not one drop of it will get into your physical body because your mind has blocked it through your fear, your doubt, your unbelief. But as you renew your mind, you open that valve and now this life of God flows out of you. It's not a matter of getting God to somehow or another give you something. It's a matter of releasing what you already have in Christ. That's huge what I just said. The thing that opened all of this up to me was this revelation of spirit, soul, and body, that it was my spirit that got changed. This teaching on spirit, soul, and body is what changed my life. Today, I'm going to be talking about that you've already got it. And I quoted this verse yesterday from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. 
You know, this is an amazing passage of Scripture because it says He hath blessed us. It didn't say blessed be God who can bless us, who will in the future bless us, but He's talking about He's already blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It says it's already done. And some people think, well, I'm not blessed. Yes, you are. You're already blessed. It's already there. And somebody says, well, what good does it do me if it's not out here in the physical realm? Well, the first step is just knowing what you have. Before you can release something, you have to first of all know that you have it. Philemon chapter 1 verse 6, said, Paul was praying a prayer and he says, I pray that the communication of your faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which you have in Christ Jesus. Notice it says the communication of your faith. I'm communicating right now. I'm taking truths that God has revealed to me that are real in my heart and I'm releasing them, communicating them to you. So when you say the communication of your faith, you're talking about the release of your faith. The transferal of your faith will become effectual. How? By acknowledging every good thing which is in you. You could say which is already in you in Christ Jesus. The way your faith begins to be effective, it begins to work, is by acknowledging what you already have. You can't acknowledge something that doesn't already exist. With the very word acknowledge is talking about just recognizing, counting upon, relying upon the fact that this is already true. When you understand that you're already blessed, maybe not in your physical body, maybe not in your soulish realm, but in your spirit, you've already been blessed with all spiritual blessings. When you understand that, then the rest of the Christian life becomes a simple matter of releasing what you already have instead of trying to go get something that you don't have. <clears throat> you know, just imagine this. Let's say that this cup right here is healing. And if I could just get there, if I could just reach there, then I can be healed. See, that is, you may not understand this or you may have never looked at it this way, but that's actually a statement of unbelief. Because you're saying, I don't have it yet, but I believe I can go get it. I can reach out and get it. But what would happen if you have an adversary and you say, healing is over there. I'm going to get it. Well, this adversary, the devil, the Bible talks about that Satan is as an adversary. The devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan could block your hand. He could keep you from reaching it. He could grab you. He could hold you. See, when you say healing is over there, I'm going to go get it. There's an element of doubt in that. But if you could understand this, I've already got it. It's mine. It's mine now. I'm not going to get it. I've already got it. Once you understand that, see, it changes everything. How can you doubt that you're going to get what you've already got? The reason Christians doubt and struggle to believe that they're going to receive because they believe that their answer is out there somewhere and they've got to pray it down. They've got to go pursue it and get it. Once you begin to understand that you're already blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, it's in your spirit realm that it's true. Then the rest of the Christian life becomes a simple matter of a renewing of our mind 
so that our soul and our spirit get into agreement, then your body is just, you know, the odd man out. That's two against one. Your body has to respond. Healing has to come. If you could understand, you've already got it. You know, I've got a friend of mine, uh, Mike Hesh back here. He's answering phones right now. I saw him this morning and he, he and his wife, Caroline, are back here working in our phone center. And we had a video of Mike and he had a, a breast cancer. He got hold of my teaching on you've already got it. And for I think it was either six or eight years he had been believing for a healing of this huge tumor on his chest. And when he saw that he already had healing, see for six or eight years he had been believing he was going to be healed. But when he quit believing it was over there and it was coming in the future and he believed it was already done, his faith just exploded and he knew it was a done deal. And it took about six months for this tumor to be totally gone and to be healed. And it took just a brief period of time. Once his soul got into agreement with what he already had in his spirit, then it's just two against one. And it was just a matter of time until his physical body reflected it. This, in a nutshell, is how simple the Christian life is. And sad to say, many Christians are trying to get God to do something that He's already done. It says in 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. It puts it into the past tense. God doesn't have to heal you today. You were healed. It's already been done 2,000 years ago by His stripes. His stripes took place in Herod's judgment hall. That was 2,000 years ago. God's not going to heal you today. He's already healed you and He's already placed this raising from the dead miraculous power on the inside of you when you got born again. The whole book of Ephesians is written from the mindset that it's a done deal. It's already accomplished. Just understand. Get a revelation of what you've already got. Don't go beg God to give you something, but release what He's already given you. That's the mindset. And this prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 is from that perspective. Look at this. It says in Ephesians 1, 14, or, or excuse me, let's drop down to verse 15. It says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now this is the only thing He's asking God to give you is a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Actually, even this request that for God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation, it's something that they already had. It's just a praying that it would work, that it would begin to function, and that these people would recognize it. So in verse um, 18, here, here's what he's praying, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Man, I could spend hours on this verse, but it, he's just praying that your eyes of your understanding would be opened to what you already have. The, his calling that is in you. His calling in you. Not just your calling, not some inferior calling. No, you have His calling. You are a partaker of His anointing and of His calling. 
He's praying that your eyes would be open to the calling that you have in Him and the exceeding uh, or the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. This, this inheritance isn't just in heaven, but it's already in you. You have the same glory that God in heaven has. It's on the inside of you. If somehow or another you could take what you have in your born-again spirit and it could be lost, it would take all of the glory of heaven to replace what you have on the inside of you. That's a huge statement, but the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians that we have been called to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not something that's going to take place in the future, but that's what you already have. The, the glory of His inheritance is in you. And then in verse 19, he continues to pray that your eyes would be open to what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. That's talking about demonic powers. Jesus is exalted above them and hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church which is His body the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Man, there is a bunch in those passages of Scripture. But this is praying that your eyes would be open to the exceeding greatness of His power that you have. And then he says it's the same power that God used when He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, if somehow or another you could put one of these meters, you know, that has a little gauge that it goes like this, and shows you the increase in power or whatever, if you could somehow or another do that on God's power. I believe that creating the universe might have been like this much power. But raising Jesus from the dead would have pegged the thing out. It was the greatest display of God's power, the release of God's power that this universe has ever seen. And somebody might say, well, how do you come by that? Well, for one thing, when God created the universe, He didn't have a devil that was opposing Him. There was zero opposition. And as, as great a manifestation of God's power as creating all of the universe, the stars, the planets, everything, as great as that is, when it came to raising Jesus from the dead, Satan and every demon out of hell, every demonic force that has ever existed was standing there resisting God's power. And so in that sense, I believe that the greatest display of God's power that this world has ever seen was when He raised Jesus from the dead. You know, I went to this play one time where they had uh, people dressed in period costumes and there was a person playing Jesus and there was this person that was in the crowd who was always dressed in black and had a hood on and he was always slinking around and he was personifying the devil and when they were yelling, crucify him, he's the one that started the chant. When, you know, everything negative happened, this person who was personifying the devil was always there. And then when it came to the resurrection scene, this person who personified the devil was standing there pushing against the tombstone as hard as he could. And, you know, I believe that that is an accurate uh, 
picture or representation that Satan and all of his forces were trying to stop the resurrection of Jesus. Because as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Jesus not only had to pay for our sins, but He had to raise from the dead so that He could overcome death and bring us to the Father. And so every every ounce of Satan's strength. He, he wasn't anywhere else. Nobody on this planet was being bothered by the devil that day but Jesus. Satan's entire force was against Jesus coming back from the dead. And as they did this play, they had this person pressing against the tombstone, trying to stop it from being rolled away. And then there was this big explosion and a bunch of smoke. And when the smoke cleared, the person who was playing the devil was laying underneath the tombstone and the tombstone was on top of him and Jesus was standing on top of the tombstone. And I just thought, man, that is a great representation of what happened at the resurrection because Satan's entire kingdom was against it and yet the power of God overcame Satan, all of his forces, Jesus rose from the dead. And this is saying that the power that you have, the exceeding greatness of the power that you and I have inside of us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and set Him at His own right hand far above all of these demonic powers. The power that you have is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's not a tiny bit of that power. It's the exact same in quantity, in quality, it's exactly, it's identical. You have raising from the dead power on the inside of you. And I know that many people watching this program right now are saying, well, I don't. Why? Why do you think that? Well, because I feel this pain in my body. See, you are looking in the physical realm. You don't understand this spirit, soul, and body. You don't understand that it's in your spirit that you have this. The part of you that you can't see in a mirror, that you can't feel with your emotions. The only way you can see your spirit is through the Word of God. And I am giving you a representation of what's true in your spirit. In your spirit, you've already got it. You've already got this raising from the dead power. It's not out there that you've got to somehow or another hope you can obtain it. You've already got it. It's already in you. And once you begin to understand that and acknowledge these good things that are in you, your faith just shoots through the roof. Man, when I begin to see that I didn't have to get healed, that I was already healed, it wasn't me fighting to get healed. I was fighting doubt and unbelief about what God has already done. When I saw that, it just changed everything. It is so much easier to rest in what you believe you've already got than it is to go try and conquer and get something that you don't have. And this has just changed my life. I believe I've already got it and I am not the sick that is trying to get well. I am the well that Satan is trying to steal my healing from me and I refuse to do it. It's easier to defend a position that you already occupy than it is to go and take a position that is held by the enemy. And I tell you, this has transformed my life to understand that I've already got it. Today, what I want to talk about is about the true nature of God. And this is important because if you have a wrong concept of who God is and how He relates to us, it will influence and affect your relationship with Him. 
And the sad fact is that most people, even most Christians, have a wrong concept of the nature and the character of God. In the Old Covenant, God revealed Himself, and it wasn't inaccurate the way that He was revealed, but it was incomplete. It showed God's hatred for sin, but only through Jesus do we understand grace and truth the way that the New Covenant has revealed it. Over in the book of John chapter 1, it says the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. And the law has been misunderstood by people. And because of this misunderstanding of what the real purpose of the law was, religion has been presenting this picture of an angry, hateful God that is demanding perfection. And if you get out of line, the wrath of God is going to come upon you. And there are some uh, indications of that in the Old Covenant. But I want to give you a very quick overview Here's the reason. When the Lord first dealt with Adam and Eve, most people think that when Adam and Eve sinned, God just hated them. He was holy. They were unholy. And He drove them out of His presence. He did drive them out of the garden, but it wasn't because He couldn't stand them and He, he was angry at them and bitter towards them at all. That's not it. Matter of fact, right here in Romans chapter 5 and in verse 13, it says, For until the law, that's talking about the time of Moses when the Ten Commandments was given, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. The word impute is a word that we don't use a lot. We use the concept a lot, but we don't use this word and many people just, you know, don't really think about what this means. But the word impute is like an accounting term. A concept that we could relate to today is when a person uses a credit card. When you go and buy something and use a credit card, did you know you didn't pay for it right then? What you did was on that credit card, on that little metal strip, is information about you and they impute that transaction to you. But you didn't pay for it then. It's just imputed unto you. So the word impute means to be held against you, to be recorded, to be, uh, you know, written down in the books, held against you. This is saying that God did not record or impute or hold people's sins against them prior to the time that the law came. Now that changes everything because again, most people believe that the moment Adam and Eve sinned, that God imputed sin unto them. The Bible says it wasn't imputed unto them. Which is it? Well, it's what the Bible says. And you can go over there and look in Genesis chapter 3. He actually drove them out of the garden, not out of hatred or rejection or punishment, but out of love. The reason it says he did that in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3, I believe it's around verse 22 or 23, he says he did it so that they wouldn't take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now what that means is God loved us so much that when we sinned against him and we allowed sin to come in and death by sin and sickness and suffering and hatred and wars and, and fightings and all of these things, God loved us so much. He did not want us living eternally in this fallen, sinful state. And so He drove them out of the garden, not out of rejection, but out of love, so that they wouldn't take of the tree and eat it and live forever. 
Could you imagine what it would be like to be eaten up with cancer and have pain and yet never die? And so when Adam and Eve sinned, he didn't drive them out of the garden out of hatred and rejection. He did it out of love for them. I've got something better for you and I don't want you living forever subject to all of this suffering that is caused by sin. Now some people don't see that, but I tell you, I see that very clearly. That's awesome. And so God was still walking and talking with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 4. He was still talking to him. He was merciful. The very first person who murdered on the face of the earth was Cain. He killed his brother Abel. And instead of God killing him and judging him right then, God set a mark on Cain and said, If anybody tries to avenge Abel's death, I'm going to avenge Cain's death sevenfold. God protected the first murderer. In contrast, when the law was given, the very first person that broke the law was a man who picked up sticks so he could make a fire and cook some food on a Sabbath day. And he violated the laws concerning the Sabbath. And God told Moses, kill him. Make an example out of him. Can you tell the difference? When the law came, the wrath of God was revealed. And prior to the time of Moses, this says, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Prior to the time of Moses, God was being merciful to people. When the law was given, wrath came. God imputed man's sins unto them, held sins against them, and began to judge and punish them. Why did God do that? First of all, let me say, He waited 2,000 years before the law was given. That right there says a lot. That says that this wasn't God's first choice. God did not want to impute our sins unto us. He did not want to be judging us. He did not want to be punishing us. And you can see that by the fact that for 2,000 years He was merciful and actually took people who were living in things that the Bible now reveals were a sexual abomination and He blessed them and used them in spite of all of that. So if that's true, if that was God's true nature was to be merciful to us and gracious to us, then why did He give this law that started holding sins against us? Well, it's because prior to Jesus coming and redeeming us from our sins, the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, that the natural man, that's just talking about a man who's not been born again and quickened by the Holy Spirit, a natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. So people prior to Jesus' resurrection and the institution of the born-again experience, people could not really understand God the way that we do. So how did God turn these people who were spiritually dull away from sin? It's very similar to the way that we deal with children. Did you know, uh, I need to explain some of this because today... People are dealing with children, I believe, in ways contrary to what the Word teaches. Some people think you just let them do whatever and they eventually outgrow everything. No, the Bible says that if you hold back the rod and reproof, you hate your child. It says that you need to reprove them while there's hope. And so the scriptural way of dealing with children is that when they're very young, you tell them, no, you can't do this. And it has to be more than just words. There has to be a punishment that goes with it. The Bible talks about the rod and reproof, a spanking. And they may not even know there is a God or devil, heaven or hell. They may not understand that being selfish is a demonic trait. 
or any of these things, but they do understand that I do not want that pain. I do not want a spanking. And when they have the selfish thought about taking things, they'll remember the consequence, the punishment, and you can actually get a child to resist the devil through fear of punishment long before they even understand the devil and understand good and evil and things like that. Well, in a sense, that's what God did. Old Testament people were not able to understand and comprehend prior to being born again, and yet God had to restrain the sin that was going in the earth. He waited 2,000 years before He gave the law, but sin was escalating at such a pace that if God hadn't have done something to turn mankind from their sin and cause fear in people that would make them withdraw from sin, there literally would not have been a virgin left on the earth for Jesus to have been born through. That's not an exaggeration. I mean, that's how bad things were. In the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, bestiality, homosexuality were just the rule of the day. It was terrible. And when God brought the law, it also brought wrath, it brought punishment, but it put fear in people and fear caused them to withdraw from sin because of fear of God's punishment. But in the New Covenant, 1 uh, John chapter 4, I believe it's verse 18, it says that fear has torment. Whoever fears has not been made perfect in love. Fear wasn't the perfect motivation for serving God. But until Jesus could come and bring us the love of God, Fear was a tool that God used and He literally struck fear in the heart of man by revealing His hatred for sin and His punishment upon sin. But the scripture, again, makes it very clear that this was 2,000 years after the fall of Adam and Eve. So God's uh, waiting for 2,000 years shows you this wasn't His first choice. It wasn't His first reaction. And the Bible also teaches that when Jesus came, Jesus replaced the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law did meet a need. It put fear in people. It revealed God's proper standard. It made them withdraw and it limited sin. But the sin that they did commit now was empowered. It, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe it's verse 56 or 57, it says the strength of sin is the law. The law strengthened sin. The law made sin just come alive in us, Romans chapter 7, and deceive us and slay us. The law wasn't to set us free. The law was to bind us and to show us how evil we were in the sight of God. And along with that law came condemnation and guilt. And even though that stopped us from committing as much sin, the sin we did commit had more sway over us, more power over us because of that law. You know, my life is an example of this. I was raised in a religious system. I got born again at a very young age, but I was raised under the law. Man, I, I used to have dreams. Some of you will think I'm exaggerating, but this is absolute truth. I used to have a dream at least every six months that I had smoked a cigarette and I got caught and then turned into the police and the police turned me over to my mother and after a beating from my mother, I woke up in hell, burning in hell because I'd smoked a cigarette. And I know, I know some of you think, man, that was weird. But that's how legalistic, how strong my upbringing was. And you know what? 
because of it, I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never spoken a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. It kept me from committing sin. But the sin I had committed, I was probably more guilt-ridden and feeling unworthy than many of you who've gone out and committed adultery and wound up in jail and stole and did different things. I had more guilt associated with me than many of you who did worse things in the eyes of people. See, that's what the law does. The law strengthens sin. The law stopped me from committing as much sin, but the sin I had committed separated me from God. That was the purpose of the law. The law was to show us that you need a Savior. You can't save yourself, but it was impotent, completely incapable of ever producing change in you. All it could do was show you your need for change. The law, if there was a hundred things in a list and you did 99 right, it would never issue a compliment. It would never say anything positive. All it would do is show you the one thing you did wrong and make you feel guilty. That was the purpose of the law. And there was a time and a place for that. But once you come to Jesus, you are no longer under the law. And now we serve God, not out of a sense of debt and obligation, fear of punishment if we don't do the right thing, but we serve God out of thanksgiving and, and love for what God has already given us. And if you can understand what I've said, I've summarized this very quickly. If you can understand this, it'll change your impression of the nature of God. God has always been a God of love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. It was love that caused Him to drive Adam and Eve out of the garden. It was love that caused Him to wait 2,000 years before giving the law because He wanted people to respond to Him out of love and mercy. But when we took His lack of punishment as approval... God put down a law to show us how, how wrong sin was, how sin was destroying us. It put fear in us. It kept us from committing as much sin, but it brought us huge condemnation. And it wasn't until Jesus came that the true nature of God was truly revealed, how He was merciful even to the sinner, and He offers salvation completely independent of our performance just based on our faith. Will we put faith in Jesus? Will we accept salvation as a gift? Man, if you understand this, it changes your whole concept of the nature of God. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.